The song goes, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. My first pastorate was in Tucson, Arizona, and I started on June 1st, and it was really hot. And for three months, it kept getting hotter. (laughs) I loved it, actually. But when December came, it never really began to look a lot like Christmas. I didn't love that. No leaves on the ground, no need for flannel or parkas. No way to cut down your own Christmas tree. Everything that grows in Tucson has needles, but there's not pine needles. I missed the signs that told me Christmas was coming. I don't know whether you love the Christmas season or not. A pastor named Eric Schumacher recently wrote this. My parents divorced when I was 12. I haven't had a holiday gathering with both my parents and all my brothers present for 31 years. I probably never will again. It is still incredibly painful every year, and I think I'll mourn that until the day I die. For for some of us, celebrating Christmas is hard because of hard past realities or hard present realities. For others, celebrating Christmas is wonderful because of wonderful past memories and wonderful present realities. For most of us, it's some of both. My hope during the Advent season here at church is not different than my hope at any other time of the year to point us to the wonder of knowing Jesus Christ. We printed Christmas flyers, we handed out in the bulletins. I don't want you to hang them on your fridge. Please give it to a friend, a coworker, a family member, a neighbor, so they can hang it on their fridge. I'll be preaching the week before Christmas and on Christmas Eve, and I would love nothing more than to see people here um, pointing our attention on Jesus, especially some of those who might not normally do much of that. Please turn with me in your Bibles to the letter we call Romans. It's in the New Testament. We call the New Testament the New Testament because it was the part of the Bible that was written after Jesus came to earth. Romans is a letter written to a church in the city of Rome, a church full of people trying to do what we're trying to do, to make sense of the good news of Jesus and see how that relates to our everyday lives. So I'm going to begin reading right where Pastor Ben left off last week in his sermon. So follow along with me in Romans chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 12 and read through verse 17, and then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. So follow along with me. Romans chapter 12 verses, excuse me, chapter 8 verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, Not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. 
For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. I invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do not know all of the blessing that it is that we can call to you, Father. But as we reflect on this passage this morning, I pray that you would open our minds, open our hearts to that privilege of sonship in the gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Pastor Ben and I have said to each other uh, quite a few times that if you're going to be a preacher who's going to preach through the book of Romans, you have to be at least 50 years old. You just, you just do. The theology and the complexity of thought, they're too rich for otherwise. Now, one of my pastor heroes refers to Romans 8 as the greatest chapter and the greatest letter in the greatest book ever written. In my opinion, he might not be overstating things. But I did add it up, however. Pastor Ben and I and Davis Yance, who's going to be preaching next week. Um, none of us are over 50, but between the three of us, we have 106 years. <laughs> so we thought that might qualify us to attempt to summit Romans 8. Christians commonly call the season leading up to Christmas Advent. The word Advent means coming or arrival. The Advent season allows for focused attention backward on the first Advent of Jesus as the man born to die and focused attention forward on the King come to reign. But during Advent, while all the faithful come to sing about being joyful and triumphant, as we adore our Savior, sometimes our understanding of Christmas and being joyful and triumphant can seem merely sentimental, merely nostalgic, good food, family, friends, and presents. There's that classic scene in the cartoon version of how the Grinch stole Christmas when the narrator says in the Grinch, with his Grinch feet ice cold in the snow, stood puzzling and puzzling. How could it be so? It came without ribbons. It came without tags. It came without po or packages, boxes, or bags. And he puzzled and puzzled till his puzzler was sore. Then the Grinch thought of something he hadn't before. What if Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store? What if Christmas perhaps means a little bit more. I believe Romans 8 offers more 
than a little bit more. In Romans 8, God calls the faithful to come adore the deeper joy and the more gritty triumph of Jesus, which is the joy and triumph that will sustain the children of God in a world long in air and sin and pining for the second advent of Jesus. In all these things, Paul writes near the end of the chapter, verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loved us. The these things at the end of this chapter that Paul speaks of that we are more than triumphant over include, Paul writes, tribulation and famine, distress and danger, which means that we have more joy and triumph than can be bought from a store. As Pastor Ben opened the series last week here in Advent, he did so with the first 11 verses, and he held up high the gospel of free grace, undeserved that we Christians receive in the gospel. And the opening verses in that chapter set up the theme really for that sermon. The opening verse reads this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This means that everyone who is, quote, in Christ has no condemnation from God. Not because we don't deserve condemnation from God because of our sin, but because of Christ Jesus. Because God sent Jesus into the world to take our condemnation for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for us. Some of you know that in the fall, I went through the ordination process in the Evangelical Free Church. It involved a lengthy oral exam. Many of you attended that. I'm so thankful that you did. And it also involved writing this dense theological paper. You had to answer a ton of questions in that paper. One of the questions they tell you to answer was this. What does it mean that you are in union with Christ? This is the theme that's highlighted in verse 1 of Romans 8. For those who are, quote, in Christ, there is therefore no, now no condemnation. So what does it mean to be in Christ, though? Here's what I wrote in my ordination paper. Two paragraphs of it. Nearly 100 times in the New Testament, we read of believers being in Christ. Even more occurrences surface when we include variations of the phrase. In fact, sometimes the biblical authors even speak of Christ being in believers, not just believers being in Christ. Union in Christ covers a range of aspects related to a believer's salvation. Simply put, to be in union with Christ is to have your life now and into eternity Bound together with Christ in such a way that you receive all the saving benefits of the gospel. Colossians 3 says that our life is hid with God in Christ. To put it even more simply, union with Christ is like placing everything good about the gospel into a sack. Labeling the sack in Christ and handing it to the believer. Last week, Pastor Ben's sermon took that sack of blessings, turned it upside down upon our heads and shook for 35 minutes the glories of the gospel into our laps. 
But the question hung out there. What now? If God has taken away all of our condemnation and corruption through Jesus Christ because we are in him, do we have anything to do? Our passage this morning answers the question of what now? Because of the gospel reality that we are in union with Jesus and thus have no more condemnation, in the power of the Spirit of God, Christians are now to begin putting to death our sin. That's what this passage is about. Look with me as I reread some of the verses again. 12 through 14 say this. So then, so then, brothers, meaning brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Paul begins with, so then. In light of all the treasures of heaven promised to us in the gospel, what are we to do? Answer? We are to put our sin to death in the power of the gospel. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul proclaims that because Jesus has freed us from the prison of sin, we do not need to stay in that prison any longer. Jesus threw open the doors to just walk out of that prison. Don't stay in bondage. That's what Paul is saying. And he uses violent language to do so. For if you live according to the flesh, he writes, verse 13, you will die, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's violent language. A pastor in the 17th century named John Owen wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, the, the killing, the mortifying of sin. Reread it last year, and there's a famous line in that book that says, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Jesus spoke often of this type of violence against our own sin, the war of the Christian life, the be-killing-sin part of Christianity. I'll give you just one example from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus is going to use a deliberate overstatement to make his point. We read in Matthew chapter 5 this, You have heard that it was said, this is Jesus speaking, You shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. Notice the point of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 and the words of Paul in Romans 8. Do not command us to go on a sin diet. Like we just sin less. And then every once in a while we have these cheat meals here and there. God commands us to starve sin, not diet from sin. Christians don't seek to just, just limit their sin, but eliminate their sin. And the word our in our sin is important. Christians 
Christian, be far more concerned about your own greed than the greed of corporate America. Be far more concerned about the sex that's viewed on your smartphone than the sex filmed in Hollywood. Be far more concerned about the health of your own marriage than the cheapening of marriage by our government. God's view of sin is of something dangerous, something that robs us of joy and him of his glory. We don't have this view. Sin sin is something we laugh at and we coddle. A lot of young people at our church, I love that. I'm not old enough to be your father, most of you, but I could be an older brother. By some accounts, and depending on which chart you look, I'm actually the oldest millennial, believe it or not. I know I have six kids. (laughs) Um, So I don't like it when people pick on millennials. I don't like when people pick on us. I don't know if I count to most of you. So please hear this as a loving encouragement from a brother who cares. As much as we talk about authenticity and transparency and brokenness, let us show one another how much we hate our sin by the war we also make against our sin. When Paul uses the word flesh here, he doesn't mean skin and meat and bones, but that part of your nature, part of our nature that opposes God. The flesh is at war with God, verse 7. Hostile to God is the language this version uses. And in the power of the Spirit, we're to slay our sin. And don't miss that connection between our sin and slaying our sin and the power of the Spirit. Romans 8 teaches that the Spirit of God in the life of the believer does more than one thing. More than simply telling you that God loves you. Yes, the Spirit of God works in Christians to remind us of all the good things we have in the gospel. Adoption, reconciliation with God, forgiveness, things like this. But the Spirit also points out the sinful places in your life that need to die. This isn't about having some minimum level of holiness and like, if you have some minimum level of holiness, well then now God will love you. It's not about that. I will always love my children. But but if we're to sit at the dinner table and have fellowship and joy, like, They can't be cursing me behind my back when they think I'm not listening, right? That's what this is about. They'll always be my kids. The way Satan points out your sin and the way the Spirit of God points out your sin is different. I heard a preacher put it like this once, the condemnation of Satan is broad and ambiguous and hopeless. The conviction brought by the Spirit, however, is focused and narrow and hopeful. If you take, I'll say it this way, Satan looks at you and says, you're a loser. That's that's broad, that's ambiguous, that's hopeless. But if you take your finger and put it in your shoulder and press on it with increasing pressure, don't do this to me. (laughs) 
I had a, some of you don't know, I had shoulder surgery a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm, it's getting better, right? You take your finger and you press it into your shoulder with increasing pressure. That's like the conviction the Spirit brings. Do you feel that? The Spirit asks. This particular thing needs to go. Let me help you, he says. So in last week's sermon, Ben told us all the good things we have in the gospel when we are in Christ. And this week we see that being in Christ leads us to run from sin. Let me illustrate it this way. Let's say you lived in an apartment. And a lousy, evil landlord runs the apartment complex. But first you don't know he's evil because he promised you to live in a great place. But when it came time to move in, things changed. Your rent doubles. Your heat stops working. Your bathroom plumbing breaks. Your electricity cuts in and out. Rats scurry around at night. You say, Mr. Landlord, you promised this and you promised that. And now it's different. I want you to fix it. And he says, tough. And every month, he proceeds to pound on your door, demanding his rent, oppressing. You can't leave. You're a captive. And then one day, a new owner buys the apartment complex, and he himself becomes the landlord, and he throws the lousy, evil landlord off the property and begins to fix the plumbing and evict the rats and restore everything to its proper place. Thankfulness wells up inside you. However, after the initial euphoria is gone, the old landlord keeps coming around. He keeps walking around with his clipboard, walking around the apartment complex, and he keeps pounding on your door every month. Pay up. Your rent is due, he says. You're mine. You're a debtor to me. Do you know what you say? You say, no, Mr. Evil Landlord. I have a new landlord who is kind and wise and powerful and loving. And just as he has thrown you off before, so he will do again every time I call out to him and ask for himself, his help. He's the great liberator. Security, show this man the door. That was last week's sermon. This week, we're pressed with the question why we would vandalize newly renovated property. Why we're not content with the apartment he gave us. And why we get so angry with the other tenants. Who, by the way, are all recipients of grace. Church, what in your life needs to go? If that sounds hard to you, it should. But don't miss the promise. Look again at verses 13 and 14. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, not meaning a hypothetical, meaning a reality that will be yours as you do this. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. As you kill your sin, you don't earn your sonship, you display it. In passing, before we go to the next point, let me mention something that's a little technical. Probably should be said, though. It's about the word sons and the phrase sons of God. 
Later in the passage, which I'll read in a moment, Paul uses the more general children of God, not just sons of God. Those more critical to the Bible might be inclined to just see this as as the patriarchal influence, the crust that's there in the Bible. That's actually the exact opposite. So in the first century, only a son would inherit the full and biggest blessing of the father. So if Paul had spoken here of daughters of God, some would have gone in the first, like as they received that letter, like, okay, you wrote of daughters of God, that's great, but daughters don't get it all. That's why Paul says sons of God. It's not to be a slight to those who are daughters of God, but to say that You're a child of God too. Whether a son or whether a daughter, you get the full inheritance of the Father. Paul speaks of sons of God to celebrate the beautiful reality of the adoption into God's family, namely that as a daughter of God, you have equal standing in God's house. All the children are sons, even when they're daughters. Look with me how the rest of the passage goes here, verses 15, 16, and 17. Speaking of sons, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. That word Abba denotes tenderness and intimacy. Kind of intimacy of waking your dad up at night just to tell him your socks fell off. One pastor said, I don't feel respected if my children call me Dr. Ortland. I feel put off. In the same way, my children don't call me Reverend Verbicek. They call me Daddy. In the Gospels, one time we read of Jesus speaking to his father as Abba Father. Do you know the context? Let me read it to you. It comes from Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 32. It says, Ours before he would be arrested, moments before he would be arrested, hours before he would be crucified. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he, Jesus, said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The word Abba squeezed out of Jesus during his greatest moments of suffering. Think about that. When our Savior suffered, that's when he cries, Daddy? I think that context should inform 
what we read here in Romans. In contemporary Western Christianity, we often have the assumption that we know our sonship best when we feel most blessed. That's not what this passage says, though. I'll put it like this. We often assume as we stand in some alpine meadow with the sun shining and our bellies full and our bodies strong and we confidently cry out, I am a child of God, right? But this cry of Abba Father is more like the helpless cry of a scared child in the dark who rather than trying to find his own way out of the pain and rather than giving up in utter despair, instinctively shouts out, Daddy, Daddy, are you there? The instinctive cry for dad is actually, according to this passage, not an instinct, but the work of the spirit within the child of God. This is the deeper joy and gritty triumph of Romans 8. When I received my driver's license in high school, I was a pretty bad driver, I admit it. The number of my accidents reached the double digits. Let that sink in. Most were at low speed and in parking lots. But one was not. It was an early Saturday morning in the spring and the roads were wet. And before you exit the highway, you round this huge curve. The tires on my minivan slipped, the van fishtailed, and I scraped the guardrail, and I came to a stop in the grass, and I got out. The headlight on the passenger side dangled like an eyeball detached, like somebody had put a, put a knife in the side of the van and just pulled. I got back in, drove up to the exit, and the other two minutes it took to get to the high school parking lot. I parked as far away as I could so no one would see. I was on the way to a track meet and I had to catch the bus. In the locker room I called home to tell my father. We didn't have cell phones. <laughs> I remember staring at the red brick wall wondering what he would say. Dad, I messed up. I told him what happened. His first words were not, you stupid son. How many times have I told you? Instead he said, are you okay? You can't manipulate impulses. Right? They just sort of get squeezed out. When I whispered daddy, love and care and concern squeezed out, told me to get on the bus and we'd deal with it later. So I did. And on the way out of the school campus, the bus full of my teammates drove by my minivan and everyone laughed at me. But I knew my dad loved me. After Jesus was resurrected, he had numerous conversations with his disciples. 
In Luke 24, we read of Jesus speaking about how suffering comes before glory. Let's look at this from Luke 24, beginning in verse 44. And he, that's Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. For Jesus, the truest son, what child is this? For the truest son of God, suffering came before glory. This is what Paul says of us too. Romans 8, 16, 17. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Children, comma, then heirs. Like they're joined that close. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. If children then heirs, Paul says. I I don't know what suffering you're experiencing. I don't know if you're in high school and everyone is laughing at you. I don't know if slaying your sin is more difficult than you ever could have imagined. I don't know if your parents divorced when you were 12 and you've never had a Christmas as a complete family since. But I do know that if you are a child, then you're an heir. His inheritance becomes your inheritance. And if you are a child with a full inheritance coming, then you can call God Abba Father whenever you need him. If you join me in prayer, I'm gonna invite the worship team Close us in song. Heavenly Father, there are things that the scriptures say to us that are hard to hear. And yet there are also things that the scriptures say that are so good to hear that if the scriptures did not say them, we would be inclined to think that they are too good for us to believe. Lord, we thank you that in the gospel, what was true of Jesus is ours. We thank you in Christ's name.